Please turn with me to Romans chapter 8. I'm going to continue our study of Romans chapter 8 this morning. Uh, it has been said that in time, people start to uh, look like their pets, which, um, you know, is not necessarily a good thing. They also say that uh, in time, uh, spouses can begin to look like one another. Uh, and I'm not sure that we want to necessarily look like our pets or like our, like our spouses, but have you ever thought, what do I want to look like at the end of my life? And obviously, I don't mean simply physically. But who do you want to become? Do you have a vision for that day? I know for each and every one of us, there are areas of our lives we say, well, you know, I'm not really content with that. I'd like to see this change or that change. But have you ever imagined, what would it look like if God reached into this area of my life and he changed it? And then he began changing every area of my life. And at the end of my life, I was actually conformed to the image of Christ. What would that look like? Well, that's what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 8. He's talking about the work of the Spirit in believers' lives to transform us into the image or the likeness of Christ, so that through our personalities, we reflect God-likeness. And what I'd like to do as we begin, I'd like to go back and review the principles that Paul began to lay out in Romans chapter 8. So I'd like you to read with me in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 3. Paul writes, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. Paul begins to develop an analogy here of the Christian life as a walk. He's not the first to use that image. It's used all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy. Life with God is a life in which we walk. And when we walk with the Spirit or according to the Spirit, or as he says in Galatians, in step with the Spirit, we experience life. That is true life, what God had actually designed for us to experience. Peace, that is, in Hebrew terms, the fulfillment of all of God's blessings for us. Walking according to the Spirit is a life of Peace and fulfillment, all that God designed, as opposed to walking according to the flesh in which we experience death. And he doesn't, by that mean eternal condemnation. He means a life of alienation as a believer, not enjoying intimacy with God and not experiencing his power, not being transformed by the Spirit. Second, Paul says that the way that this walk is achieved is by obtaining the mindset of the Spirit, or setting our minds on the things of the Spirit, letting the Spirit transform our whole orientation in life. Read with me in chapter 8, verse 7, verse 5, excuse me. He says, For those who are according to the flesh, that is, believers who are keeping in step with the flesh, they set their minds, or have the mindset of, the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh, or the mindset of the flesh, is death. But the mindset of the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Remember last week we said that this word mindset involves two connotations. The first is our patterns of thinking. Our preoccupation, fixation, dedication, that is moment by moment, 
hour after hour, day after day, what do we set our minds upon? And I asked you to do an exercise. Think about thinking. What are you thinking about? Are you aware of yourself and what's going through your mind and what you're setting your mind upon? What are you preoccupied with? It's very revealing. Am I preoccupied with the things of the spirit or am I preoccupied with the things of my flesh and my body and its longings? Second connotation of the mindset is our worldview. That is what we come to believe is true or valuable, important, lasting, enduring. If day after day, moment after moment, I am setting my mind on the things of the flesh, my mindset, my worldview will be shaped by the flesh. And I will love the things of the flesh and I will believe in the things of the flesh. I will think they were valuable and important and I will give my life to those things. In other words, our mindset or our worldview will determine the choices that we make. Let me give you one illustration. Remember in Matthew chapter 16, uh, Jesus asked his disciples this fundamental question. He says, who do you say that I am? I understand that the rest of the world thinks this. Elijah, one of the prophets, returned. But who do you say that I am? And Peter, always wanting to be first, he steps up and he gives his answer. He says, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. You are God's Messiah, God's chosen and anointed king. You're the one that God has designated will set all things right. You're it, Jesus. And Jesus says, right on, Peter. You, you nailed it, man. Excellent. That is exactly correct. And I say to you, you are Peter. And upon this rock, this fundamental truth that I am the Messiah, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. You know, and Peter must have been thinking to himself, awesome, you know, I just stepped out and Jesus named names. He said, I'm, yeah, Peter, that's right. I'm Peter, you're not right, Peter. Then Jesus goes on, he says, now I'm going to explain to you what is Messiah all about? We're going to go to Jerusalem. When we get to Jerusalem, the Jewish leaders are going to reject me. They're going to hand me over to Rome and they're going to crucify me. And then three days later, I'm going to rise again. And Peter steps up again. He says, "Uh uh-uh. Lord, this will not happen to you. I won't let it happen. We won't let it happen. No, Lord. And Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. No, he goes, get behind me, Satan. That had to sting, right? I mean, moments earlier, you're Peter, you're the rock. Now, Peter, get behind me. You are my Satan. You're my adversary. You are standing against the will of God in my life. Get out of my way. I don't want to have anything to do with you. Get behind me. Why? Because Peter, you are not setting your mind upon God's interests. You are setting your mind upon your own interests and the interests of the world. You don't have the orientation of God. You are trying to tempt me not to fulfill my difficult path, my destiny, to go to the cross and to die for the sins of all people. Get behind me, my adversary. Your mindset is messed up. Months later, Jesus would be about to go to the cross. And he would be telling his disciples, I'm going to go to the cross again. And Peter says, uh-uh, Jesus, I told you before. 
Even if I have to die with you, I will give my life for you. I will lay down my life. And Jesus gently this time turns to him and says, Peter, no, you won't. You're going to betray me. How did Jesus know that? You know, he is God in human flesh, right? Um, maybe the father revealed it, but I would argue anyone who had the mindset of God could have known that Peter would fail because Peter had a divided mind. Peter wanted what he wanted out of Messiah and that's why he was following. He wanted Rome crushed and he wanted a place in the kingdom. He also loved Jesus and believed in him, but a divided mind is failure. Okay, a mindset that's split between the world and God will ultimately cause failure. And so Jesus says, no, you will fail, Peter. But I'll pick you up later. And I'll change your mind. So how is it that we develop the mindset of Christ, the orientation of God, a worldview that is uh, trusting and believing in all that God says is true and valuable, enduring, so that our attitudes, our words, our behavior is lined up with God? How does it happen? Uh, Do we just let go and let God, right? Just kick back. Am I changed yet? Nope. Didn't happen. Do we uh, try a lot harder? Uh, Create a better list of rules and keep that list of rules. No, that's Romans 7. That's a wretched man that I am. So, So how does the process develop? How does God reorient our minds? Uh, Paul puts it in the most succinct terms in Philippians chapter 2. He says this. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to desire and to do his good pleasure. Work out your salvation. Uh, Paul is not contradicting Romans. He's not saying you can earn eternal life. He's talking about this process in Romans 6 through 8 of sanctification, of being transformed into the image of Christ. And he says, work it out, but work it out with fear and reverence and trembling before a great God. Why? Because it's God actually who's at work within you. Do you see the balance here? Do you see the tension here? He's saying that fundamentally only God can change you. But God will not change you unless you cooperate. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who is at work in you, both to desire and to do his good pleasure. In other words, what God is aiming at, what maturity looks like, is that he creates within us both the longing for his will and the capacity to do it. We're not just begrudgingly working our entire lives to obey God, but he is creating longing or desire and capacity to do it. And that's what he unpacks in Romans chapter 8. So I want you to turn back to Romans chapter 8 with me again and look in verse 12. Romans chapter 8, verse 12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation. We are literally debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Notice Paul starts a thought and then doesn't finish a thought. It's pretty typical of Paul. Uh, He says, so then, brethren, we're not under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. And you expect him to say, but we are under obligation what? To the Spirit. Why? Well, we're under obligation to the Spirit because it is the Spirit who moves us from death to life. And it is by walking according to the Spirit or following the Spirit's leadership that we experience life. And so what I'd like to do for us this morning is talk about four qualities of a life led by the Spirit. The Spirit-led 
life. The first is this, spirit-guided practice. Okay, spirit-guided practice. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14, it says, But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. The writer of the Hebrews is making a distinction between the mature and the immature. He says, it seems like you're fairly immature. I want to give you more solid food. But solid food is for those who are mature. It's the word teleos, that is complete. Not perfect, but they're mature. Those are the ones who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern that's evil, that's good, and I choose the good. It is through practice. And I want to list for you this morning four practices by which we follow the Spirit's guidance in our life. The first is this, crucify. Crucify. Read with me again chapter 8, verse 13. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body... Now, when I see that phrase, what comes into my mind is, I think, I wouldn't have said it that way. I would have said, crucify or put to death the deeds of the flesh, right? That inherent desire that's wed within my physical body to be independent from God, to, to, to live uh, according to my own ways and to resist the work of God. I would have said, live uh, according to the flesh, so put to death, the deeds of the flesh. Paul says the body. So is Paul arguing that the body is bad? You know, some kind of uh, Gnostic dualism. Body's bad, spirit is good. So kill the body and keep the spirit. That's not what he's saying. Remember, what he's saying is the body is inherently weak and vulnerable and frail. And it has these natural longings that it tries to meet in any way possible, sometimes illegitimately, meet it. He's saying that the body is the only tool through which we interface with the world, with one another, with, him, with God himself. You don't do anything apart from your body, and your body is weak and frail and vulnerable. And Douglas Moo wrote a commentary on Romans, and he said this, the battle, of course, is a spiritual one, but it is fought and won or lost in the daily decisions the believer makes about how to use his body which includes how you use your mind. Because you don't do anything disembodied. It's all in the context of your body. And he says, put to death then the deeds of the body. In very practical terms, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says, I discipline my body and I make it my slave. The word that he uses there for discipline is literally, I blacken my eye. (laughs) I dot my eye. Uh, It used to say in New American Standard, I buffet my body. Man, I pound my body into submission. Is he meaning literally, physically? No, he's saying figuratively. I create an environment in which my body can't rule. And the lusts of my body can't be in control. I create an environment in in which it's possible that the body is not the master, but the body is the slave. It's the servant. It becomes the tool of the spirit rather than ruling over me with its longings. And so this mortal body, this body that is decaying and dying and is vulnerable, can actually become a tool of the Spirit through which I worship. I buffet my body. Again, in very practical terms, Romans chapter 13, Paul says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. That is, the body 
as well as the sin nature that is bound up in the members of the physical body, don't make a provision in which it can reach out and respond positively to sin. In other words, Paul says, I change my environment. And just a couple months ago, I was reading an article. I think it was in the New York Times. Guy was um, reporting on some studies that had been done about New Year's resolutions. And the conclusion of these studies was that nobody keeps them. Everybody sets New Year's resolutions, but nobody keeps New Year's resolutions. I think it was like 90% failure rate on New Year's resolutions, right? Uh, The good things we want to start, we don't start. The bad things we want to stop, we don't stop. And their conclusion was basically no human being has strong willpower or can strengthen his will. The will's broken and it can't be fixed. I don't necessarily agree with that conclusion. I do think the will is broken, but it can be strengthened. But what they observed is that in that 10% who actually kept some of their resolutions for a considerable length of time, the difference was not willpower, but it was a change in the structure of their lives. They changed the structure of their lives so that they made it nearly impossible to keep doing that bad behavior. But there wasn't inherently a difference in their willpower itself. Okay? That's what Paul is getting at in Romans 13. It's not the whole package, but it's part of the package. Make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. I had a friend in college who was an alcoholic. And he went out and he got himself a job tending bar. That didn't work well for him. He wanted to stop drinking, but every day he went into work, there he was. I had another friend who moved out to Southern California, and every day at the end of work, he would drive his car past a nude beach, and he'd stop there and park and watch for a while, and then he'd go home to his wife and kids. He needed a new structure. It had changed the route driving home, but you know, changing the route even driving home wasn't enough because sometimes he'd change that route and he'd change that route back. It was so deeply ingrained in his habits of mind. You know, I do that on my way to work sometimes too. There are no nude beaches, that's not what I'm talking about. But what I'm saying is, um, I'm saying is, I get in the car and I start to drive. I forget where I'm driving and I just go. Okay, that's how human beings are wired. If I'm taking the kids someplace other than school in the mornings and I start driving, I just start driving to school. I go, where are you going, Dad? I'm, I'm just doing what I always do. Okay? That's how we're wired. That's how we function. Well, he had discovered that what he needed to do was not have a different route to work. He needed to carpool. Take the wheel and put it in somebody else's hands. Because his will was beaten down. You know, we're born with weak wills. We're born, remember, fallen nature, total depravity. We talked about a couple weeks ago. doesn't mean we're as bad as we could possibly be. It doesn't mean that uh, we're as immature as we could possibly be in every area. But it means that our minds, our emotions, our conscience, our will is affected by sin. And so we are born weak. And you say to yourself, yeah, but you know, if I was really spiritual, if I was really mature, I wouldn't have to create those barriers, Right? I wouldn't have to let somebody else drive. I could be an alcoholic and I could get a job in a bar, right? If I was really mature, I could do that. That's my point. You're not. 
okay? You're not, and nor am I. And again, I'm not saying that you are as immature as you could possibly be, nor am I saying that I am, but I am saying that every single one of us have areas of immaturity and weakness and vulnerability, and probably the best thing that could happen this morning is we walk out of here in humility and honesty and own it. There are areas of your life that you are weak and vulnerable, and you may stay weak and vulnerable in those areas your entire life. Paul had a thorn in his flesh, and he never tells us what it was. But he kept saying, God, take it out. God, take it out. God, take it out. God said, nope. But my grace is sufficient for you because power is perfected in your weakness. I'm not trying to make you strong. I'm trying to make you dependent. So get on your knees and beg and reach out for my strength, because my strength is perfected to you when you're truthful and honest and humble. You know, the, the greatest quality that God praises in the Bible is humility. It says in Isaiah, to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, trembles at my word. He trembles at my word. This is very practical, people. Paul's saying you want to walk according to the Spirit, you want to have your mind transformed by the Spirit, well, one of the first things you need to do is put to death the deeds of the body, change the environment. Why? Because your weak will is weak and it's broken and your will just may need a rest. Where it's not constantly bombarded, but you can step back and let God change and strengthen your capacity to say no. Hey, that's on the negative side. Crucify. On the positive side, cultivate. In other words, pull up those weeds out of your garden, plant a fence around it, but then cultivate. Okay, grow something. It's not just about what you remove, but what you do. These are what we call spiritual disciplines. Okay, we're making ourselves available to the Spirit of God so that he can change us. Giving rest to our wills so that the Spirit can speak and we can hear his voice. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul describes it like this. He says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Man, that sounds like legalism. No, Paul's just acknowledging this is how God has made us. Discipline yourself for the purpose of becoming like God, who is the one who's at work in you, and only he can change you, to create within you both a desire, a longing, and the, the ability to obey him, that is to become like him, to have the whole orientation of your minds changed. Discipline yourself. And the word that he uses for discipline here is uh, literally, we, we get gymnasium from it. It's gumnazo. And he says later on, it is for this purpose that we labor, which means to labor to the point of weariness, and we strive, which is the Greek word for agony, so that we could become conformed to the image of Christ. It is a battle. The spiritual battle is a battle. We need to resign ourselves to the fact that it's going to be a battle for our entire lives. Until we're glorified and see Jesus face to face. This is a spiritual conflict. And we have to cooperate with the work of the Spirit in our lives. The way we do that, God has said, I have wired you such, I have structured you such, that these practices help to change the orientation of your mind. Dallas Willard wrote a great book on spiritual disciplines. I'd encourage you to read it. He's a little bit hard to track, but if you stick with it, uh, it's an excellent work on spiritual disciplines. He defines them like this. The disciplines are activities of mind 
Okay, what we think about, what we choose to set our minds on, and body, purposefully undertaken to bring our personality and total being into, into effective cooperation with the divine order. We're not changing ourselves, but we're cooperating with God by intentionally undertaking certain activities, both in what we think and what we do with our bodies. They enable us more and more to live in a power that is, strictly speaking, beyond ourselves, deriving from the spiritual realm itself as we yield ourselves to God. That is, we make ourselves available to God. Now, I don't want to talk about the specific disciplines or how to practice them. Uh, You may want to go back and read a book like Dallas Willard's or Richard Foster's book, Celebration of Discipline. Uh, I did a series on each of the disciplines and how we can practice these. I just want to make a couple of comments. There are disciplines in which we engage with God and things that we say no to. And as we do these things, they are training us indirectly to have our minds transformed. Okay? These things in and of themselves don't make us spiritual. These things reveal how deeply we, immature we are in certain areas and how much we need to cling to God. Okay? And you can practice these disciplines in a way that's actually counterproductive, that feeds your flesh and feeds your pride. Now, this is, uh, again, from Richard Foster, Celebration of Disciplines. He says, in and of themselves, the disciplines have no virtue. They possess no righteousness. The disciplines place us before God. They do not give us brownie points. They don't, they don't make God go, oh, wow, you know, you're more spiritual than you are because you prayed half an hour and you only prayed 10 minutes. Or you're more spiritual because today you prayed 30 minutes and yesterday you prayed 25 minutes. All that you're doing with the disciplines is putting yourself in front of God so that God's spirit can speak to you. Okay? And this training works indirectly. In other words, when you're facing the moment of temptation, that's not when you're practicing the spiritual discipline. That's when you're acting out of the training that you already did with the discipline. So, what are we doing this morning? What's the point? Well, generally speaking, we'd say worship. They would call us a worship service. We came to worship, right? What we came to do is to get our minds reoriented. Right? We're out in the world and struggling along and the world is sending all these signals into our mind and some of them we're actually believing and thinking upon and meditating upon and they're, they're, they're bending us. And we come back here and we go, let's worship and get reoriented. Let's, let's proclaim the worth of God. He's great. He's valuable. He's true. He's lasting. He's enduring. Everything that he says is right. He is good. And I can trust him and he's in control. And I walk out of here, and if I continue to worship, I continue to set my mind upon him. I wake up in the morning, and moment by moment, even as I'm at work, I'm thinking on these things. I face a moment of temptation, and my mind has been reoriented, and I'm tempted to say, whoa, maybe God is not good. Someone just took something from me that I need. God, wake up. Did you fall asleep and allow me to be taken here? My flesh says, and my flesh says, be angry at God and solve the problem yourself. Take matters into your own hands. And I stop and I say, wait, wait, wait. God is true. You know, Tim put some words up there and I sang them. They're true and they're right and I believe them. God is in control. That person can take, but they can't take anything that's most valuable to me. 
God is in control and God has enriched me in Christ. And you can take my physical life from me, but you can't separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, my Lord. I'm okay. I'm, I'm, I'm not pleased with this. But God, how would you have me respond? Because I've trained myself to worship and my worship has given me a new image of who you are and I want to be like you. And my mindset has shifted. It's changed. Now, I may react initially negatively out of my flesh, but the more that I worship, the more God transforms my mind. And I think differently. I believe differently. And so that becomes my nature in time. Because I have cultivated the work of the Spirit. I've put myself in front of the Spirit so the Spirit can have access to my heart and my mind, my conscience, and my will. I cultivate. A third, imitate. We we learn by imitation. You, You see it in children very obviously, but even as people, we imitate. Teenagers see what they think is cool and they believe it. It's their worldview, and so that's how they're going to dress. And that's how they're going to talk. We see it in children. We see it in teenagers. You know, we are exactly the same as adults. I like to pretend we're not, but we do. We learn by imitation. There's someone else who's in flesh and bones, and I can say, yeah, I want to be like that. Sometimes it's just subconscious. But that's how we learn. And so I want to take you back to the ultimate example, which is Jesus Christ. Hey, the one that we should be imitating. Look at Matthew chapter 4 with me. In verse 1, it says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Hey, where did we first see the Spirit? Well, just a couple of verses earlier. Verse 16, chapter 3, it says, After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and landing upon him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Got a Trinitarian moment here, don't we? The voice of the Father is speaking, and he has sent the Spirit down who lands on the Son. But if the Son is fully God, why did the Son need the Spirit to land upon him? And why did the Son need the affirmation of the Father? Well, because Jesus is living as an example for us. And he has a physical manifestation for himself as affirmation, as a man, but also for all who are around to see that he is living under the the power and direction and fullness of the Spirit of God. And so it is the Spirit then who turns after his baptism and takes Jesus and leads him into the wilderness. Notice it says, he leads him into the wilderness. Why? To be tempted by the devil. Jesus is not outside of the will of God. He's following the leadership of the Spirit. And the Spirit is leading him into a confrontation with Satan, with his adversary. It says, after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, prove it. Make these stones become bread. And Jesus answered and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus does not turn, as we said last week, to his divine capacity to make stones into bread. In the moment of his vulnerability, his body is starving. And not like what we're going to say at the end of church, I'm starving. Not starving like that. He's really, really hungry. 40 days fasting, his body is saying, feed me, feed me, feed me. 
And he has the capacity to reach down and make stones into bread. So he says no, and he turns to the word of God. Why did he turn to the word of God? Well, I would argue that he turned to the word of God because his entire life he's been turned into the word of God. Remember when Jesus was just 12 years old? His parents couldn't find him. Where was he? He was three days by himself, unafraid, in the temple, mixing it up with the rabbis. Man, he's asking questions and giving answers, and everybody's going, whoa, this kid's 12? (laughs) Wow. Ask him another question. That's amazing. And he's feasting on the word of God. His parents come to him and say, what are you doing? Where have you been? He said, what do you mean? Didn't you know I had to be about the things, literally the things of my father? I am oriented to the will of my father. 12-year-old boy, he's unafraid, living three days by himself in a large city because he's preoccupied, obsessed with, fixated upon the word of God. So in the moment of temptation, under the direction and power of the spirit, where does Jesus turn? Turns back to the source, turns to the word of God. He turns to the same resources that we have. Imitate Jesus Christ. Have you ever, ever wondered why did Jesus pray? Right again, remember he's God in human flesh. Why did he pray? Because he prayed a lot. He prayed because he was setting an example for us. This is how a mature, complete human being, man or woman, lives. If you want to live well, live like this. And so Jesus prayed. He prayed a little bit publicly. He prayed a little bit with his disciples, showing them how to pray. But then he prayed a lot by himself. Frequently, you see Jesus going off for hour after hour after hour, praying and praying and praying hour after hour after hour. He prayed more than any of us ever pray. God in human flesh needed to pray. How much more do we? Paul would say later, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Can you imagine being able to say that to someone? Without pride, but saying, walk with me as I walk according to the Spirit. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. We learn by imitation. When we see these practices put into somebody else's life and say, oh, I understand. Yeah, I can walk that way too. And so for you believers who are a little bit further down the road, who are a little bit older and wiser, who have learned more, I want to challenge you this morning. You have an obligation to those who are younger around you to model a walk with Jesus Christ and to invite them to walk with you. I think that that is the particular strength of our church. God's put 50% college students in this church. That's a gift and it's an obligation. Now, you may not show a hundred how to walk. Maybe it's just one. But for you who are a little further down the path, you need to take one or two along with you and say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And if you think that your own imitation isn't at exactly the point that it should be, well, maybe this morning is that wake-up call that you need to learn how more fully to imitate Jesus Christ. But start where you are and model what you have. Because we learn by imitation. Okay, let me take you back to this uh, analogy of walking. You ever watch the um, walking race in the Olympics? <laughs> Probably not. I don't think they've, they don't even put it on TV anymore. 
When I was a kid, they used to put it on every once in a while for a few minutes. I thought, man, that's the dumbest thing I've ever seen. I mean, these, these folks look so stupid. They're trying to walk fast. And so they're just, you know, they're just waddling along and they, they walk like a long ways. I'm thinking, just make it a, a walk sprint because get it off. Right? I mean, it's just so dumb and terrible. You know, put the put 100-yard dash, put, get the sprinters on. That's fun. You know? Even the distance folks, they're running. That's awesome. Paul says, no, walk. Just walk. It's not glamorous. It's long and it's slow. And it's just one foot in front of the other and sometimes you look a little goofy doing it. Just walk. He doesn't say Sprint. It says walk. A slow and steady obedience in the same direction. Eugene Peterson once wrote. Long obedience in the same direction. It's the walk. Remember the story of uh, Naaman the Syrian? He was an Aramean. He was from the area of Syria. He was a, a general. And he got leprosy. But he had a Jewish slave girl. And she loved her master. And she saw him as a leper. And she said, you know... There is the one true God in Israel, Yahweh, and he has a prophet. His name is Elisha. If you go down and talk to Elisha, I believe God can heal you. So Naaman loaded up his chariot. He got a bunch of soldiers. He rides down and parks in front of Elisha's door. Elisha doesn't even come out to talk to him. Sends out a servant. Servant walks out, says Naaman, Elisha says, go down to the Jordan, wash seven times, get up and you'll be cleansed. And Naaman is hacked. He is furious. He's like, prophet doesn't even come out and talk to me. Tells me to go dip in the Jordan, that little tiny muddy creek you've got. I got better rivers back in Syria. Are you serious? This is insulting. I wanted him to come out and do his prophet business on me. Like, you know, wave a hand over and wow, something's going to happen. All the leprosy has gone. I want an event here, right? I want something cool. And so he gets in his chariot. He starts to race off and his servant pulls up alongside and says, Sir, master, father, if Elisha had asked you to do something hard, you would have done it, wouldn't you? Just go get in the river. This is how God transforms us. And it doesn't work in our lives when we don't practice it. Just walk. One step after another, day after day. It's usually not flashy and it's not glamorous. It's just day in and day out faithfulness. Before we leave this point, I want to talk specifically and apply this principle to addiction. Those behaviors you want to break that you just do over and over and over. How do we stop those and move towards something healthy? In 2007, a man named Michael Lemonick wrote an article. uh, It was in Time Magazine. I was reporting on studies that had been done on addiction. He said this, scientifically speaking, addictions are repetitive behaviors in the face of negative consequences. Okay, bad, bad stuff, things that destroy our lives, but we just keep doing them. They're often fueled by the addict's manipulation of the brain's reward system. In other words, this is how we're wired. That is, as he had said earlier, pleasurable activities or substances release dopamine, a neurotransmitter. Anything that can manipulate that reward system can, in a sense, become addictive, including drugs, alcohol, food, sexual stimulation, a host of other behaviors, uh, gambling, shopping, anger. 
anything that gives you that rush and afterwards you have this sense of, I'm angry and I have an outburst of anger and everybody else is laying on the floor because of my anger, but man, I feel better. When I do that, it wires my brain. There's an activity and then a sense of pleasure afterwards and my brain says, get more of that. I got a friend who teaches psychology and he said in in his business, they say it like this, uh, neurons that fire together, wire together. The activity and the sense of pleasure afterwards. And it might be risky and dangerous and destructive, but wow, it gave me a rush. And I say, no, 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 I don't want any more of that. But wow, that was good and I do it again. Because why? My, my, My mindset has been reoriented. Okay, it causes physiological changes in the brain. Men and women, this is the spiritual life and it happens in your body and this is how God has created us. Now, my friend went on to say this. He made an interesting observation. He said, dopamine release can also work in our favor if we seek out positive behaviors. The best example I can think of involves selfless acts such as helping another. When you help, help someone, dopamine is released in your brain, rewarding you for that positive behavior. But that's not all. Dopamine is also released in the brain of the recipient, so they feel good. And if there is anyone who observes your good deed, they even get a small release too, encouraging them perhaps to help another. Therefore, selfless acts may be contagious. Awesome design feature. Isn't God good? But here's the rub. Um, Positive, healthy obedience often doesn't give us a rush. It often doesn't give us a rush. And so temptation is a lie from Satan. Okay? And what happens when we're tempted and we act on that temptation is we believed a lie. Okay? We believe the lie that, you know, I, I won't keep doing that behavior. I'll just do it this once. I'll stop after I do it this one time or the consequences won't be that great or I can undo the consequences of this thing and I can restore fellowship to that per- with that person that I've hurt and I can restore fellowship with God. And we don't realize this, we're deepening this pattern, these patterns, these ruts in our brain, the mindset in our brain, which is so difficult to undo because obedience doesn't often yield a corresponding rush and release of that dopamine to ingrain that new pattern, but it does slowly because it's a walk. It's a long obedience in the same direction. And God says, I promise you that if you allow me to reorient the way that you think and reorient your worldview, if you believe me about what is true and valuable and enduring, you will experience life. So I got through this morning uh, 25% of my material. Uh, I'm not going to leave you hanging. We're going to pick up the other 75% next week, I promise. I just want to leave you with um, one application. Let's see. I think I changed my slides here. Yeah, here we go. Okay. Three points. Crucify, cultivate, imitate. I want you to go before the Lord this week and say, Lord, what, what is it in my life that needs to be put to death? What about the structure of my life needs to change? So that my will can have a rest and breathe and I can listen to the voice of your spirit. What are the weeds that need to be pulled up and honestly confessed? What are the vulnerabilities in my flesh in particular that I need to be honest about and say, yeah, 
I am immature in that area and I am weak and vulnerable in that area. Let me build a fence around that area. And then let me cultivate so that maybe when the fence is down and I'm faced with that temptation, I have cultivated so much that my nature is changed and I can react differently. And who do you need to imitate? Is there someone around who is walking according to this pattern that you can pattern your life after? Or who is in your life that you need to demonstrate this pattern to? Because we learn these things best when we see it in another living, breathing, flesh and blood human being. I want to exhort you, don't waste this morning. Don't waste this morning. I know beyond a shadow of doubt that God intends to speak something very specific to each one of you, including myself. So don't walk out of here, file it as educational material, and not allow God's spirit to change something in your life. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would listen to your spirit. I pray that you would slow us down enough to tune out the chatter of the world, at least for a few moments, and listen to the voice of your spirit. I thank you, Father, that you gave your son not only to pay the penalty for our sins and remove our debt, but to release us from the power of sin by sending your spirit to dwell in us. And I pray, Father, that you give us hearts and minds that are sensitive to the voice of your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week.